Congratulations, you've made it. It's the last evening of our retreat together. And you can just see what kind of um, Vedana accompany that perception. I imagine for many of us it's it's mixed. Yeah, there may be um, some uh, sadness or uh, that, it, that it's coming to a close so quickly and also some anticipation of some of the things that we might have missed or uh, be looking forward to getting back to, to re-engaging with or the other way round. <laughs> That's always a bit of a, a question: what to what's to offer uh, on the last night of a retreat? And I decided what I what I want to bring forth this evening is really uh, a celebration um, of all that we've been doing together and uh, some encouragement. And basically, I feel like having a party. <laughs> So there's a there's a Pali word, of course, as there is for everything, <laughs> for celebration, or sometimes we translate it as honouring. So uh, there's a there's a sutta that I very much love, in which the the Buddha is sitting meditating in the dark of the night in the Jetta Grove, which was one of the the first Buddhist monasteries that was given to him in his lifetime. And because he taught, he taught not only human beings, but also celestial beings. He's visited in the dark of, an, of the night by a, a radiant deva, a Buddhist angel or deity, who comes to ask him questions about uh, happiness. What conduces to happiness? The deva says, uh, just like uh, human beings, devas are interested in the problem of happiness. And tell us what things are most conducive to happiness. And the Buddha proceeds to give a a long list, which is a very beautiful thing to uh, visit and read at any point. But the very first things he says, he says, uh, the first thing is avoiding associating with foolish people. And associating with wise people. And then after that, honoring or celebrating that which is worthy of celebration. This is conducive to our happiness and well-being. So I want to do that this evening. Um, And there are two things particularly that I want to uh, just draw attention to and celebrate. And one is... um, this aspect of cultivation, the cultivation of practice as a cultivation and the place of mindfulness within a, within a whole um, stream of cultivating uh, that which is good, that which conduces to happiness. And the other aspect is celebrating community. And I especially uh, am happy to do that this weekend because as you know, if you've, I've, I doubt there are many people here who haven't perused the notice board quite thoroughly today. <laughs> and you'll have seen the reminder that Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yeah. And uh, he was the great visionary of what he called the beloved community. And community has a, a really central place in the tradition that mindfulness is part of. 
So speaking to that sense of community. And this community, the beloved community, and the community of uh, sincere mindfulness practitioners uh, is, a, is a community not of foolish people, but of wise people. So it's a good place to hang out. <laughs> and of course, this community, as you probably know, is the Sangha in, in uh, Buddhist tradition. And this is considered a refuge uh, it's one of the three refuges, the three jewels. So Chris uh, suggested yesterday evening that the crown jewels of the Dharma were the four Brahma Viharas, and that's true. But there are also, the, of course, these three other jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So particularly remembering Sangha. So why is it important to locate mindfulness within uh, this practice of cultivation and that within a sense of community. I think uh, that my uh, beloved Dharma brothers have made it really clear that mindfulness practice is embedded in a relational field. Chris said yesterday that actually metta is really more of a verb than a noun. Yeah, it's a uh, befriending, befriending of circumstance, of, of phenomena, of people. And you could also say that mindfulness is a verb. And it's difficult to define and measure and pin down and even to teach or communicate in words alone because it touches into the deepest mysteries the things we least understand, in fact, from a scientific point of view, they're just the nature of life and of consciousness itself. And this mysterious thing, mindfulness, is uh, embedded in a, a um, practice of cultivation. We've used this word bhavana over and over again, this bringing into being, cultivating. And the most commonly used metaphor for this cultivation, of course, is that of a path. So in the Buddhist tradition, we get the Eightfold Path, and it's also sometimes called the Middle Way. And both path and way uh, are translations of a Pali word, again, patipada, which is a word I, I really like. Pati means um, again or repeatedly, and pada is foot or footstep. So this middle way, noble eightfold path that can sound really grand, it sounds like a superhighway, but actually it's something that we make by putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. So again, you begin to see that actually even the path is less of a noun than a verb. It's a pathing, a stepping one foot in front of the other. It comes about through our creative engagement with what we encounter externally and internally. You could even say it's a natural expression of this attuned attentional relationship of mindfulness. It's not a lifestyle any more than mindfulness is a lifestyle. It's something that we live and do. 
we're always practicing something. We can't help but be practicing something. And as we become more aware and have more choice about what we practice, we also have more responsibility. So to quote Dr. Martin Luther King, the the time is always right to do what is right. The attitude of mindfulness is one that is caring and careful. Because once we begin to understand the basic mechanism of suffering and its release, then uh, the question of how to live you know, it starts to uh, answer itself. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the great um, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, he says, when we look deeply into ill-being and understand its nature, suddenly the fourth noble truth, the path, reveals itself. So this path is uh, often often expressed in terms of a threefold training in generosity, dana, or giving, sila, or ethical conduct, and then bhavana, this word that we've been exploring. And the, the beginning of the path with dana means that the practice is embedded in a relationship of open-heartedness and generosity, which is why it's so supportive to have it in, set in a context like IMS, where this is part of the culture, part of the tradition that's been passed along. You could say that this is meta in action. And then sila, or ethical training, is bringing the practice to how we relate to others, uh, into, so bringing this relationship to others into the field of practice. And then bhavana or mental development is cultivation of this internally. Okay. And this internal cultivation is both the fruit of the, the first two limbs of this th- th- uh, three-part training, of the cultivation of generosity or giving and the cultivation of ethics. But it's also, it's a circular thing because it's also what enables them to really flower and flourish. And then this threefold training, of course, gets a fuller expression in the eightfold path, which is often referred to as the Arya Eightfold path, which is sometimes translated as noble, but more perhaps means ennobling. It's that which lifts us up, lifts the heart. And I'm not going to go into a detailed explanation of the Eightfold path. Many of you are familiar with it. And if you're not, it's very easily researched. Any, any introductory book on Buddhism will explain the Eightfold path to you. But I just want to just quickly... Um, trace through the the elements and just point out that we've actually been practicing all of them here. So the first being right view or wise view, wise understanding. We've been developing our understanding, honing our understanding by listening, reflecting, trying out, trying out ideas, measuring them against our experience. Wise intention, the second step, We've been uh, practicing with an intention to do that which really benefits us. 
And I've, you know, you see many examples of people actually pausing to reflect. Our, as, as we practice, our intentions start to become more clear to us. And we actually really stop and consider, okay, what is my intention here? Even when I choose to go and have a cup of tea or to walk or not walk or lie down or switch on my phone and phone my family, you know, I'm really struck by the degree of care with which you approach even making those, these little choices. And this is all training the mind to develop clarity around intention. The wise intention to do that which is for our welfare and benefit and for the welfare and benefit of others and not the opposite. And then speech, the, the cultivation of speech that's truthful and timely, kind and beneficial. So just by honoring, honoring the silence, you know, you've been practicing uh, being beneficial with your speaking, <laughs> speaking abilities. And, you know, there's been uh, a lot of kind and uh, thoughtful speech practiced in the groups together. And I hope and, and expect that sometimes in your internal speech also, you know, you've paid some attention to uh, the developing a kinder internal uh, conversation. In action, we've been cultivating non-harming and generosity and sharing and some restraint. In, even in livelihood, you know, we, we've been participating for the last week in a community that's built on an economy of giving and sharing, of trust, of non-harming. You've generously uh, offered your services and your energy and yogi jobs to support each other. It's beautiful to see the offerings on the meal dana board. You know, we've all uh, thrown ourselves into this, this way of sustaining ourselves, this uh, way of uh, living and supporting one another. In effort, you know, we've made an effort to cultivate that which is wholesome and beneficial and to abandon that which is unwholesome. I think Chris mentioned in, early in the retreat the, the story of the two wolves, the grandfather who, who talks to his grandson about the, the two wolves living in our hearts. Uh, one of them is an angry, hostile, uh, dangerous uh, cruel and the other one is loving, wise and friendly and these two wolves are in constant battle and the grandfather says uh, these, are, these wolves battle in the heart of every human being and his grandson says well which one will win and the grandfather says the one you feed yeah. and you've all been feeding <laughs> feeding the beneficial wolf and of course, you know, we're not in perfect control of this and we may do a bit, to do a bit of one and the other. But uh, overall, with our wise intention, you know, we, uh, we intend and we put effort into feeding that which is beneficial. And then the work of rise, wise mindfulness, right mindfulness, sati, just remembering to do all of this, <laughs> which is a challenge, Yeah. Remembering to do this and remembering the present moment. And wise, um, a wise concentration, wise samadhi. You know, 
attending to the meditative development of the mind, becoming skilled at calming, pacifying the mind, at clarifying, and at finding a, a more peaceful and happy abiding for it. So these are all things that we have been working on. We've all been cultivating this path together. So to really recognize and acknowledge that all this is included in the practice that we've been doing. So the Buddha, um, when asked what's the greatest support for the cultivation of the path, said that the greatest support is that of wise friendship, of having wise friends. We can't do this alone and we're not expected to do this alone. And as we walk the path, we're not alone. Imagine how it might have been if you'd have spent the last week at home with a book (laughs) and how different that would have been from finding yourself in a community surrounded by other people practicing and cultivating, having actual interactions uh, with others who are discussing and sharing the teachings, uh, sitting in a hall with these um, beautiful surroundings and in a place with a, a kind of living history and a tradition of practice. And also without the fellow yogis to produce those little irritations that give so much grist for exploration. And the yogi jobs to to reveal our our, our needs to do things perfectly or our reluctance to do things and uh, our views and opinions about how things should be done. So all all these are gifts that we find in community. Monastic life, a lot of people, oftentimes people get uh, very fired up about this practice and start to think about, oh, well, maybe the way to do it is to go and become a monk or a nun and often have a perception that being a nun or a monk is like being on an eternal retreat and uh, that it's all just a blissful opportunity to develop your meditation. And actually so much of monastic life is about... uh, this practice of community and all the friction that comes from being in community. It's where we really start to um, shave off the knobbly bits from the axle, the axle hole. Or we talk about polishing stones, you know. Being, and uh, I'm sure you know the people who live here, who are part of IMS, who are part of this community all the time, also recognise that. And of course, for all of us, uh, we have the communities. Our community, our sangha, is where we find ourselves at home. You know, our families, our colleagues, uh, the people around us. This is our community of practice. I just thought I'd share a um, a couple of readings from uh, the Buddha about uh, the benefit of good friends. And that's partly because I wanted to make a plug for this this book, which is is newly, it's recently um, published. And it's an anthology from the the suttas uh, translated and, uh, and compiled by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who, as many of you know, is the Sort of foremost, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, translator of the early Buddhist 
teachings into the English language at our, in, in our times. And this, unlike many of his other volumes, with the comprehensive volumes, which are these huge, heavy hardbacks, this is a paperback, and it's quite small, and it's very readable. And it's the Buddha's, it's a compilation of the Buddha's teachings on social and communal harmony. Um, and uh, a lot of things that are very inspiring, and I think particularly useful and valuable in the times that we're living in. Uh, he has, uh, there are sections on such things as um, dealing with anger, proper speech, good friendship, one's own good and the, own, and the good of others, on right understanding, on disputes and settling disputes, on community and on establishing an equitable society. So, just to share one little thing. So this is just a, a passage uh, on the four kinds of good friends that we find in a community in a monastic community or that we um, seek out along the path. So the Buddha is speaking to a young man, man named Sigalaka. Young man, there are these four kinds of kind-hearted friends. The friend who is helpful, the friend who shares one's happiness and suffering, the friend who points out what is good and the friend who is sympathetic. In four cases, a helpful friend can be understood. He protects you when you are heedless. He looks after your property when you are heedless. He's a refuge when you are frightened. And when some needs ar need arises, he gives you twice the wealth required. In four cases, a friend who shares one's happiness and suffering can be understood. He reveals his secrets to you. He guards your own secrets. He does not abandon you when you're in trouble. And he would even sacrifice his life for your sake. In four cases, a friend who points out what is good can be understood. He restrains you from evil. He enjoins you in the good. He informs you of what you have not heard. And he points out to you the path to heaven. In four cases, a sympathetic friend can be understood. He doesn't rejoice in your misfortune. He rejoices in your good fortune. He stops those who speak dispraise of you. He commends those who speak praise of you. So these are the sorts of friends who will support us in our growth in this practice. The other thing maybe to say about this, which I love, is that actually reading these kinds of suttas, it actually gives us a glimpse into the world in which the Buddha lived uh, in, in a very um, accessible way. So I recommend this. So I, I won't read the sutta in here, but there's uh, an, in another passage talking, or, uh, talking about spiritual friendship is the famous story, which again, I think possibly you will have heard before, uh, where the Buddha is talking to his attendant Ananda, and Ananda is 
enjoying being in the company of the Buddha and he says to, he's moved to say to the Buddha, surely Lord, spiritual friendship is a half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, Ananda, say not so, say not so, spiritual friendship is the whole of the holy life. And then he goes on to say that a spiritual friend is someone who will, is the best support for your cultivation of this eightfold path. And this uh, word, Kalyanamitta, spiritual friend, means friendship with that which is beautiful. And so we can look at that not just as friendship uh, externally with good friends, but befriending what is good and lovely in ourselves. So again, this, this sense of turning uh, the attitude of metta, of friendliness, not just outside, but also turning it within. Cultivating a, a climate of hospitality towards ourselves, towards, um, towards good qualities. And to uh, exercise compassion and care towards that which is difficult internally. Can we be as generous with our hospitality to uh, the parts of us that are are difficult as we might try to be to uh, others outside? Can we welcome whatever we have been shutting out from our heart? So Ajahn Sumedho, my teacher, he talks sometimes about uh, the orphans of consciousness. And can we welcome back the orphans of consciousness, those things uh, that we've neglected on the inside? And of course, uh, developing this is the development of the these qualities that Chris was speaking about last night, these sublime abidings, these best places to inhabit, the qualities of friendliness, loving kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic or appreciative joy and equanimity. And these qualities that we we develop in the heart, an external expression is found in something called the sangahavatu. And sangaha means bringing together or holding together. So these sangahavatu are technically sometimes called the four bases of social harmony. But Bhikkhu Bodhi calls them, and I think this is very lovely, calls them the four means of embracing others. So when we turn these qualities outwards into the practical uh, into the practical domain of relationship he says that metta um, is expressed as I said as generosity that compassion is expressed through helpful activity helpful acts appreciative joy finds expression in pleasing and kindly words and equanimity finds its expression in impartiality So again, we can only practice these in the context of relationship. We don't just sit on our cushion and radiate. We get out there and we get stuck in. This, This path is a path of engagement. It's not a path of withdrawal. 
So maybe just to um, linger a little with the idea of equanimity and Im, or impart- this idea of impartiality as a way of embracing others. Again, just uh, acknowledging our remembering and celebrating this weekend of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. So what do we mean by impartiality? This is an even and equal behavior under the pressure of these worldly winds that Chris mentioned the other evening. These these winds of praise and blame, gain gain and loss, fame and disrepute you know can we stay even and equanimous uh, in the face of those not alter our behavior uh, as we get swept around by them and also can we be even and equal in our treatment of others can we bring the same level of curiosity and friendliness towards all our encounters i love this uh this uh, it's teaching from the Dalai Lama that he, he tries to relate to everybody as an old friend. And this is the, uh, the opposite of something uh, that we chant in the, in the Metta Sutta. There's a line in the, in the Buddha's words on loving kindness that we chanted last night that says, let none despise another. And this actually translates a word that, that uh, nati manyeta, Nati means he or she or they don't exist, non-existence. So manyeta is to to consider or to think of somebody as non-existing. So it's like not acknowledging somebody's existence or ignoring them or overlooking them or looking through them. So this is the opposite of metta. And people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they, they challenge us to investigate who are we overlooking, who are we ignoring, yeah. who am I dismissing right now. We often do this not for, through any ill will, but through uh, just a sense of being busy and too busy to acknowledge and to notice, to make contact. Yeah. I notice that in myself sometimes, you know, when I, I, I'm traveling and I just, there, there may be uh, in Heathrow Airport, there's a sort of lots of the, uh, always people cleaning the toilets in Heathrow Airport and usually they're Pakistani women um, who've come to London and, you know, one just rushes in and out of these places and, and just the tendency to not really acknowledge, fully acknowledge another person's humanity is so um, easy to fall into. And when we do this, then uh, we risk exploiting one another. We do this also to the animal kingdom in a really tragic way. We also listen, we have a tendency to listen to those who we want to hear. And I've become really conscious of that in myself in the last few weeks and months as I uh, watch and listen to the media with increasing concern and despair. But just uh, recognizing that the, 
the uh, criticisms I level at others actually apply to myself as well. You know, I gravitate to that which confirms my views. Can we listen equally to all sides and not make assumptions? Can we investigate? So it frustrates me sometimes when, um, you know, hardcore Buddhists or... um, uh, I say traditional Buddhists uh, express a lot of uh, criticism or uh, skepticism, doubts about uh, the mindfulness movement without actually really knowing anything about it from the inside. You know, have they have not uh, studied a curriculum or engaged with people who are practicing? Or similarly, we might dismiss a religious group because we don't, we've never really explored what they're doing from the inside. It's really critical at times like these that we learn to listen. And in challenging times, it's a, it's a refuge and a resource that we have the support of Sangha. So this is what we're, we're here to encourage and support uh, one another and to help each other rise up to our higher aspirations. So on that note, I just want to turn a bit more to celebrating community. And I've sort of talked about community in a, in a lateral sense of uh, the people around us. But there's also the community that extends backwards in time. And actually forwards in time, if we think that we're doing this not just for ourselves, but also for those who come after us. And it can be really helpful, I think, to take a, a long view of things. So I think it's very evident uh, that mindfulness, that MBSR, MBCT uh, and all the different types of mindfulness interventions and applications are uh, part of a lineage. And that lineage is expressed by this beautiful statue behind me. It feels very different to talk about mindfulness in this hall than it does, say, in the the seminar room of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, surrounded by whiteboards and chairs and things. And I I once attended a a conference on mindfulness in in Europe at at Lera Bling, which is a a Tibetan Buddhist monastery founded by Sogyal Rinpoche of the Tibetan Book Book of Living and Dying. And the whole conference took place in in the main temple where there's actually a two-story golden Buddha statue, (laughs) which was quite a powerful, powerful symbol. And of course, these statues aren't here as things to worship, but they're just, they're just here as things to remind and inspire us and connect us with that sense of, that sense of lineage. Yeah. So this lineage goes back, back to the Buddha. But the Buddha, actually, the Buddha, even the Buddha saw himself as part of a lineage too. So he would talk about having rediscovered 
an ancient path. Yeah. There was a path through, he, he gave this simile of, of um, himself as there, there had been a, a path, an ancient path through the, through the forests and he had rediscovered it. And there's, in the mythology, there's lots of talk of previous Buddhas and Buddhas of previous eons. Yeah. So there's a lineage that extends back indefinitely in time of all those who have sought, uh, sought to understand the truth of suffering and of freedom. But from the historical Buddha of our times, there's this lineage of the monastic community that extends through different cultures, uh, through the, to the monastic lineage in Tibet, through, through to the Dalai Lama and the teachers who've come to the West now. And just for us personally in this, in this hall, or the teachers in this hall, um, it's come down through the Thai, Thai tradition through Ajahn Chah, who was a great uh, Thai forest master and the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho, who founded the monasteries where I trained and Akinshino lived also. And then the Burmese teachers and, and who taught uh, Joseph Goldstein. And Jack Cornfield was also taught by Ajahn Chah. And so and then it comes down to John Kabat-Zinn and some of his teachers, I believe, were Koreans and so on. So there's a, but there's an unbroken lineage of practice and engagement with these teachings. And this doesn't just include the monastic community, but as we were saying this afternoon, it includes uh, all those who've engaged with and uh, the practice and supported them. Not just supported them materially, but actually supported them by also practicing. And the tr- this is a trans- so it's a living transmission in terms of people embodying it in their lives, yeah, engaging with the practice of mindfulness, the practice of cultivation. And in this process of transmission, of course, as it flows from one culture to another, pieces get, some pieces get handed down and some pieces get lost, and some of it gets reshaped in response to conditions. But actually... Uh, what keeps the spirit of it alive is our practice of it, our engagement with it. So wisdom is, is like a flame that gets passed from one, one heart, one person to another, down from one generation to another. And this takes, uh, it needs uh, encouragement at times we all need inspiration and guidance and support, material support as well as, um, as well as, uh, what's the word? Moral support. Yeah. We, need, we need role models, we need inspirations. We need people who, who encourage us to rise up and become better human beings. So I'm just re- remembering this lineage really to, it's partly because it, it, it rejoices the heart to actually experience gratitude. It's an encouraging, it's an encouraging uh, experience, this experience of gratitude. 
So one, one yogi had a beautiful image in one of the groups of MBSR being like a flower on a tree and that it becomes really, uh, if one loves the flower, one becomes really interested in the tree. Yeah. One wants to know about the branches and the, the trunk and the roots and the ground out of which the tree comes. And actually, if we connect with these, we connect with the nourishment uh, that comes through this, through this, um, through this growth. So we can plug into this. This is available to us by engaging with the practice of mindfulness. We we have the invitation. The invitation is there to plug into this. Uh, to this source and to drink and take nourishment from it and to make this path ours by walking it and this sense of gratitude for uh, the benefits that we've received this again this uh, gratitude is another of the things mentioned in this in this uh, story of the deva who comes to ask the buddha about the sources of happiness and this is another of the things that the buddha names and gratitude in the sense of actually appreciating people who've benefited us so if you, any of you've been to spirit rock you'll you'll know that there's a gratitude hut uh, on the in the monastery center, which uh, has photographs of all the different teachers who have taught the, te- the teachers at, at Spirit Rock and the teachers who've taught them. And it's a really beautiful thing to see. And when I'm here, there are, there, we don't have a gratitude hut here, but there are places where there are, there are photos around. If you've meditated in the room at the end of the corridor upstairs, there's a photograph of Deepama, who was one of um, Joseph's teachers, which is very beautiful and inspiring and when I'm in this hall I like to remember how all the people who've sat on this stage and who've shared dharma from this stage including people I believe like the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sayadaw Upandita, great great masters have sat here and uh, shared the spark of wisdom that we all uh, are nourished by. So celebrating lineage. And I also want to acknowledge that lineage is not, jo- not just those who call themselves Buddhists. Yeah. So the lineage of our, of our practice includes anyone from whom we've learned something that's valuable in our life, yeah. something that's helped us to grow, inspired us to skillful action, to learn kindness and to learn understanding. Yeah. And your, your main lineage may be something completely other than this, but whatever it is, to acknowledge it and to appreciate it. Let that nourish you. So if we see our, our mindfulness as, as embedded within this uh, organic, living, uh, all-embracing, all all-touching path, we can let it be nurtured and inspired by that. So I just want to offer this as a way of uh, 
encouraging you to let your mindfulness be nourished and supported and to keep it developing. So one of one of my teachers said, you know, there's something you can do. You can get to a certain point and then you just pitch your tent by the side of the road and give up. <laughs> and he said, don't don't just pitch your set your tent by the side of the road. Yeah. We all need to keep walking to keep doing this pati pada, this one foot in front of the other. Yeah and sharing this in all our various ways, the ways that you do in the world, uh, so that we become part of a field of cultivation, a field of waking up, uh, a field of freedom. And then we're part of this lineage. And there's an interesting uh, thing that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I understand, has said. He said, the next, the next Buddha in this uh, lineage of Buddhas will not be an individual. It will be a community. Uh, so if you're so inspired, let us <laughs> work towards being part of this community. Let's bring back some uh, awakenedness into this world that so badly needs it. So thank you very much for your attention.